Shall we stand for closing prayer? <laughs> thank you, Bob Merritt, for helping us with the PowerPoint today. And thank you to the mysterious clicker who is somewhere in our audience. I'm going to click the PowerPoint through. And thanks, most thanks, to Mr. Jim Dobby, who provided a fan here this morning. Now, Tim, they're going to be lining up volunteering to preach now that we have a fan in place here. Is it warm enough outside? I love the Vance Havner, his little ditty, whether the weather be cold, whether the weather be hot, we'll weather the weather, whatever the weather, whether we like the weather or not. And that's about what it feels like. Uh, this is one of the minor prophets. Have you sometime in recent weeks considered skipping church because we're in the minor prophets? I was given Micah. At least that's not Obadiah. Uh, <laughs> uh, Mr. Cole has Obadiah. How many of you ever had a Sunday school memory verse from Obadiah? Uh, don't see any hands going up out there. At least Micah has a Christmas verse in it that we sang about this morning. I see some younger people out here. If you're 15 or younger, tell me why these are called minor prophets. Why are they called minor prophets? They're shorter. There you go. Got it. They're short. The name minor prophets deals with their volume, not their value. It deals with their size, not their substance. It deals with their length, not the lessons that we learn from them. They're short, but they are not insignificant. But that word minor can do an insidious damage to our hearts. Walter Kaiser would say, well, it's in the Old Testament. And then on top of that, they're minor prophets. There's an implication of it being remote or obscure or insignificant. Okay, we can't have that. I just so I just so I don't lose the cool. All right. All right. Point it this way a little more. No, line it up a little. Much better. Thank you very much. Thank you. These minor prophets can tend to be remote or obscure. It's easy to think of them as insignificant. They're definitely less preached. And for many, they are mysterious. And I'm going to say for many, maybe even some here, these are the clean pages in your Bibles. We will fight to keep them in the canon, but very few seem anxious to study them. Well, they're short and they're brief but they're not unimportant. They may have a brevity about them, but they're rich and they are important and significant. And I personally am glad that our elders put this in the preaching rotation that we're gonna go into the minor prophets. All right, same group of young people. How many are there? How many minor prophets? How, all right. 18 and under, how many? Anyone, how many minor prophets? 12, all right, there are 12. Thank you very much, all right. Uh, let's look at the outline of what we're gonna do this morning. 
We're going to look at the work and the role of the prophets, the time period of Micah, the outline of Micah, the audience and message of Micah, and then we're going to look at a few selected passages. We obviously can't look at at all or most of the passages, but we will do a, a sampling of some of these passages. First of all, the work and the role of the prophets. The name prophet was significant. The prophet was a spokesman for God. They were raised up by God to bring oracles of judgment on a disobedient people as they spoke strongly of judgment. But that can be misleading sometimes to to say just that. To say that does not say that judgment was the uh, something that God enjoyed doing. Look in Isaiah 28, 21 on the screen. This verse is in a context of judging, a context of judgment and justice. And it says, to do his work, his unusual or strange work, and to work his work, his extraordinary alien work. That is a definitive statement on God's attitude toward judgment in the Old Testament. It is a strange, foreign, alien work to him. He announces his judgment so the people can repent and avoid it. If he just wanted to smack someone, that's pretty easy to just do it. But no, he desires them to repent, so he announces his judgment in advance. Judgment is God's strange work. It's alien to him. Lamentations 3, the Lord's loving kindness indeed never ceases, for his compassions never fail. He does not willingly bring affliction upon his people. So when you hear that the Old Testament is just blood and guts, and the Old Testament is just God's wrath and God's judgment, somebody's giving you bad information. That judgment is God's strange work. And the work of his heart is the repentance afterwards and the promises of blessing and hope in a future The manner of the prophets. Very simply, God spoke, the prophet listened. Very often, God spoke directly to the prophet. God would give them the message by divine revelation. To Isaiah, he said, I will put my words in your mouth. But having said that, God did not dictate these books to the prophets. God spoke, they listened. The artistry of the prophets. God said it. Then the prophet wrote in his own style, with his own personality and history, and his own literary art. The message was from God, but the oral or written presentation was the articulation of the prophet himself. The spirit actively led and guided and directed the prophet, and yet preserved his own personality. The names of the prophets. God called and through the parents named the prophets. And the parents were moved by God to give the prophet a name which was usually rooted in a common noun or verb of everyday use. And so it would be very easily understood and familiar to to the groups to which that person uh, would speak. And in all but one case, the prophet's name amplifies and magnifies and furthers the message that God is giving that prophet. 
Daniel means my judge is God. In other words, my judge is not you, Nebuchadnezzar, or you, Darius. My judge is God. And you can see how those names played into their ministry. Uh, time prevents us from going over uh, how some of the other prophets' names work. There is one prophet whose name does not match his ministry. Anyone know who it is? Jonah. Jonah means dove. And it's not the graceful, peaceful, wonderful, beautiful dove that we have in our minds. Back then, the dove was a silly, flighty little bird. Well, he did get silly and try to fly away from God. But Jonah is the only prophet whose name really doesn't further his ministry. And these names are so suitable, they are so perfect, that it has led the liberal theologians to say, uh, that was all made up later after they were ministering. That's too good to have had the parents have done that. That's how good those names are to what they're doing. All right, the time period of Micah. Micah was a Hebrew prophet about 27 centuries ago. He was in the mid-8th century B.C., about 730 B.C. He lived in the southern kingdom of Judah, and he's overshadowed by his contemporary Isaiah. So Micah has its difficulties, but if we can grasp, grasp Micah, it will make Isaiah easier to understand. In fact, some of the prophecies in Isaiah are almost word for word in Micah. There's some real similarities there. The outline of Micah. It is not an easy book to outline. It has a difficult organization structure. It is a sampling of a lifetime of ministry, maybe 20 years or more. Micah is an anthology, a, a collection of many passages over many years. It is a collection of his messages. It is a wonderfully composite scheme of the things that he said. We said it was difficult, but we also find it to be beautifully written and very satisfying. Micah is sectional, but there is a pattern. In chapter 1, verse 2, chapter 3, verse 1, and chapter 6, verse 1, three different spots all begin with the word here. And that creates three uh, sections in this book. Each begins with an oracle of judgment, but transitions to promises of blessing. Each of the three sections is a warning, followed by a promise of hope. The first section has a fairly short promise at the end. The other two sections have a much larger uh, promise at the end. And this warning, followed by hope, mirrors the character of Micah's God. Remember that judgment is God's foreign, alien work. God's heart is, is restoration. God's heart is repentance. God's heart is healing and fellowship and hope. Well, that's what we have in Micah. Pronouncements of judgment, followed by passages of great hope. And hope becomes a key word. Uh, as, as anyone would study the prophet Micah. Section 1 is chapters 1 and 2. You have the first, the judgment part, uh, through chapter 2, verse 11. And then the last two verses of chapter 2 provide the words of hope, the promise of a good shepherd that's going to come for these hurting people. 
Section 2 is chapters 3, 4, and 5. Chapter 3 is the corrupt rulers and the prophets who are being denounced. And chapters 4 and 5 has a much longer end of sin and salvation for his people and talks about a new Jerusalem that's coming. The third section is chapters 6 and 7, with the section through chapter 7, verse 6, God's indictment against his people, and then the great messianic king that will come in chapter 7, verse 7. So that, that forms a good outline for the book, even though it is a collection or an anthology of, of 20 years of ministry. Each section is judgment, but each ends with great hope. All right, the audience and the message of Micah. He spoke to the northern kingdom of Israel about the destruction of Samaria, and he spoke to the southern kingdom of Judah about the destruction of Jerusalem itself. God will use Assyria and Babylon to judge his own people. His message is to speak against the deliberately rebellious and purposefully disobedient. Micah is calling the people to come back to God or his judgment will abide on them. And he speaks so forcefully that he's even going to say that Mount Zion will be destroyed. Chapter 1, verse 2. Hear, O peoples, all of you, listen, O earth, and all it contains. Not just the people, the whole earth, earthwide, listen. Let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. Hear all you peoples, listen. Deuteronomy 6.4 said, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. That is a classic Torah verse that every Jew knew. It was a fundamental verse. It was the centerpiece of their faith. The people bore witness to the greatness of the God of all gods. It is a central witness of the Jewish faith. Who is a God like you? And Micah takes that phrase here and turns it on its ear. Let Yahweh the Lord be a witness against you. He reverses it. And now come these words of condemnation from his holy temple. In the three sections dealing with judgment, he focuses on three great sins. First of all, corrupt rulers. They hated good. They loved evil. Who, they were greedy for the possessions of the people, and their greed knew no limits. They are pictured as taking the skin off the bodies of the people. That's how greedy they were. They hated justice. Their second great thing was failure in social ethics. Social ills, coveting one another's property, taking another man's fields by violence, robbing a man of his inheritance, scheming all night on their beds on how they could take stuff from their neighbors the next day. Theft, bribery, greed, seizing of houses, a complete lack of social conscience or social justice, and they were abusing and mistreating each other. It wasn't some stranger. They were doing it to themselves, each other. And the third great sin that he highlights is false prophets and idolatry. Wicked idolatry where the cultic shrines of the pagans were places of sexual acting out with male and female priests and priestesses doing religious acts. 
sorcerers, soothsayers, carved image, sacred pillars, idols, lying priests, phony priests, false priests with false messages, priests who would constantly say, everything's fine, when everything was not fine, and they would not give the correct message to the people. My grandfather was an evangelist uh, in the 20s, 30s, 40s, early 50s in some of the Midwest states. And I have a recording of one of the songs that he uh, would often uh, sing and play in his meetings. And with his guitar, the song is called The Preacher on the Fence. From out the millions of the earth, God often calls a man to preach the word and for the truth to take a loyal stand. Tis sad to see him shed his cross nor stand in its defense between the fields of right and wrong, a preacher on the fence. Come down, oh, come down, yes, come down from off the fence and preach the gospel as it is and take the consequence. Come down, come down from off the wall, come down from off the fence. Your duty's plain, you can't remain a preacher on the fence. Most surely God has called this man to battle for the right. Tis his to ferret out the wrong and turn on us the light. And yet he dares not tell the truth, he fears the consequence. Great God, please deliver us from the preacher on the fence. If Micah had had those lyrics, he would have been singing that song because he had false prophets on the fence and false priests on the fence. Prophets and priests who would not give people the right message and in many cases would only give the message when they were paid for it. Micah records a touch of his own response to his message. He winces within. Yes, Micah was a faithful prophet, but he was not unaffected by his message. It's in chapter 1, verse 8. Because of this, I must lament and wail. I must go barefoot and naked. I must make a lament like the jackals and a mourning like the ostriches. These prophets were not unaffected by the messages they shared. These, this was their own country they were talking to in many cases. These were their neighbors that they were talking to and they were not unaffected by what they were doing. All right, enough for some background material. Let's look at some passages uh, in the book of Micah, a sampler of some Micah passages. First, chapter 3, verse 12, judgment on Jerusalem, daughter Zion. In chapter 3, verses 1 through 11, is a section that deals with corrupt rulers and prophets they led their people astray, they preached for pay, the seers, the diviners, they hated good and they loved the evil. These were the preachers on the fence, false prophets with false words, and thus judgment is going to fall. And notice in verse 11, her prophets divine for money, yet they lean on the Lord and say, is not the Lord among us? No harm can come upon us. That is called the temple cult heresy, that last sentence. The religious leaders of Jerusalem were falsely confident that no harm, no evil would come to them because of the inviolable presence of God in the holy temple of that city. 
they would say to themselves, if God is in his holy of holies, who can hurt us? And there's a sense in which there's, there's some truth in that under the right circumstances. But they were using this as a lucky charm while they were being wicked prophets. What they lost sight of was God might just leave. And he did. But that is the temple cult heresy. The idea that if God is in his holy temple, who can hurt us? And God did eventually leave. And you could eventually write Ichabod on the front door. Verse 12, the most chilling passage in the book is a prophetic indictment. Remember now he's given us 11 verses of all these sins and the false prophets and the abuse of, of, of the temple and the city. Verse 12, therefore on account of you, Zion will be plowed as a field. Jerusalem will become a heap of ruins and the mountains of the temple will become high places of a forest. On account of you, wicked leaders, wicked priests, wicked judges, Zion will be plowed like a field. Jerusalem will become a heap of ruins. The word Zion, we don't know the etymology of the word, but we do know how it is used. It is used as an endearing term for Jerusalem. And Jerusalem is the daughter of God. Where did you get that? Chapter 4, verse 8, daughter of Zion and other references in the Old Testament, the Hebrew has no of. The Hebrew says daughter Zion. So God, God has a son, Yeshua, and he has a daughter, the city of Jerusalem. And now that city that is his daughter, the city of loved of his favorite David, the city where his savior, his son, died, where his son rose again, the city from which his son ascended, the city to which the nations will one day come. That city will be plowed like a field. There is no worse word in the prophets. It just doesn't get any worse than that. Judgment is coming to the holy city. What happened next is in the book of Jeremiah. Long story short, it didn't happen as quickly as his audience would have thought because in Jeremiah 26, King Hezekiah repented. And because of their repentance, remember that's God's goal when he shares a message of judgment. Hezekiah responded and the, and the city repented. And they were granted uh, quite an extension of time before the judgment did originally fall. Chapter 4, verse 1. The contrast with chapter 3, verse 12, where he's going to plow the city like a field, the contrast couldn't be more stark. And it will come about in the last days that the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains. It will be raised above the hills and the peoples will stream to it. Many nations will come and say, Come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord and to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us about his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For from Zion will go forth the law, even the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So there's this message of hope again after a pronouncement of judgment. 
that there is a new Jerusalem coming. There is a new day coming, a day with a glorious future when the nations will stream into God's daughter, the city of Jerusalem. Hope is a key word in Micah. Another verse, chapter 5, verse 2. And this may be one of only two verses in the whole book that, that people are really familiar with. This is the Christmas verse about a birth in Bethlehem. And this chapter contains what actually is one of the more stunning verses in Hebrew Bible. Verse 2 is the beginning of the chapter. Verse 1 actually goes with the previous chapter. In the Hebrew nation from Eve forward, every woman had the ongoing hope of being the one to bear the Messiah. And that hope even spread to the cities. Which city, what hamlet, what village will be the one to bear the Messiah? And in verse 2, verse 2 is in a section of verses that includes 2, 3, 4, and the first part of verse 5. So there's a, a three and a half verse section here. But as for you, uh, he speaks to the town prophetically as a person. He, he considers, he, he treats it like it's a, a live person. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you, one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from days of eternity. Bethlehem heard that. He may have been in Jerusalem when he was preaching that. And it was only about uh, 5.7 miles from Jerusalem over to, to Bethlehem. You, Bethlehem, he could almost see it. It would be like me saying, oh, you, Union Gap, we can almost see it from here. And they would have heard that message. Bethlehem is a common name. Bet means house. Lechem is bread, house of bread. But there were many Bethlehems. So he has to specify which one, Ephrathah. It's like saying, Gleed in Yakima County. Right? He specifies Exactly which one? Which county is it in? Well, this one's Bethlehem of Ephrathah. The slightest, the insignificant, from that city will come the ruler. Only God would do that. You and I would have had him born in New York City or Dallas, Texas or Washington, D.C. or some big famous place. Not God. Took a little uh, lowly hamlet, uh, an insignificant village. And this verse will be the means of God doing his work among his people. Remember now all the things that are wrong that Micah is addressing. And this baby that is coming is the one that God will use to do his work. Look in verse 3. Therefore he will give them up until the time when she who is in labor has borne a child. Then the remainder of his brethren will return to the sons of Israel... He will arise and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. They will remain because at that time he will be great to the ends of the earth. This one will be our peace. God's great work will be done through this baby coming from Bethlehem. What a message. Another one, chapter 6, verses 6 through 8. What does the Lord require? With what shall I come to the Lord and bow myself before the God on high? Shall I come to him with burnt offerings, with yearling calves? Does the Lord take delight in thousands of rams and 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I present my firstborn for my rebellious acts, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? 
This is a powerful passage on the nature of true worship, and it focuses on the motivation behind the worship. Verse 6 is a key life question. With what shall I come before the Lord? With what shall I come? Knowing that I am redeemed by the grace of God, what now does God want from me in my worship? Does he want my money? Does he want my time? Does he want my service? I come to the Lord. I come before the Lord. It has the idea of to make an appearance before the Lord, a formal presentation. And this is a very practical question. How may I adequately bow in humility before the God of heights? He has a knowledge of his sin because he talks about sacrifice. Will, will keeping these commands be enough to please God? Verse 7 is the language of hyperbole. Will he be pleased? Will he take delight? Uh, will this bring laughter to the heart of my father as he sees me before him? Will it just cause a smile uh, to break out upon his face? How to make God smile and laugh in joy as he thinks of you? How can I bring a spontaneous smile to his face as he thinks of me? And he says, I want to do more than the bare minimum. Can I bring 10,000 rams? What if I bring rivers of olive oil? What if I do the unthinkable and offer my firstborn child? This is the background of that famous verse 8. These are the questions in his heart. This is the desire of his heart as he asks. There are two well-known verses in Micah. One is the Christmas verse, chapter 5, verse 2. Verse 8 here is the other one. He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Verse 8. Now, don't rush over this real fast. This person is not playing games. This person who's asking this question really wants to please his God. He's not talking about salvation. That's already taken care of. He wants his God to be pleased with him. And Micah says, he's already told you. It's in the Bible. It's in the Torah. Deuteronomy 10, 12. Now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require from you? Fear the Lord your God. Walk in all his ways. Love him. Serve the Lord your God with all your heart and soul. Keep his commandments. He's already told you. But now Micah takes those Torah principles and applies them to the present situation of crooked rulers, phony prophets, horrible social justice. And he tells you the answer to that question is not what you bring. Yes, that's important. That's a start. But it's who you are as you bring the sacrifice. After you bring the sacrifice, live consistently before the Lord. Three things. Mishpat, do justice. Equal treatment of all. All social levels, all circumstances. Correction of wrongs for everyone. One standard of justice throughout your country from top to bottom. Treating your neighbor justly, fairly, accurately. Mishpat. And then Hesed, loyal kindness. Love and kindness. Love and mercy. Merciful goodness, loyal love, because you're the objects of his love. So you show hesed 
to those with whom you have to deal. Mishpat, Hesed, and humility, walk humbly. Have a walk that displays humility before the Lord. And this is the only verse in the Bible where the word humility is used this way. It's the only place that it takes place. I think the USA could really stop and take a look at all three of those. But he says, as you live before the Lord's gaze, when you come before the Lord, when you make a presentation before the Lord, when the Lord sees you going about the affairs of your life, when you're, when you're before his gaze, when you're under his observation, when he sees you there, the way to make him smile or laugh in joy as he thinks of you is mishpat, hesed, and a humble walk before the Lord. All right, in closing, uh, the last one was Micah's uh, closing burst of praise, chapter 7, verses 18 through 20. Just notice that in the verse 14, Micah speaks, Lord, shepherd your people with your scepter. Uh, he asked the Lord to be that shepherd. Verses 15 to 17, God answers him, Oh, I will do it in such a great way that the nations will uh, pick up their ears and notice that I am taking care of you. And then in verses 18 to 20, Micah responds. <clears throat> notice how he closes the book in verses 18 through 20. It is a time of wondrous, wondrous praise. Verse 18, first of all, he highlights God's incomparable character. Who is a God like you who pardons iniquity and passes over the rebellious acts of the remnants of his possession? See, judgment is his alien, strange work. Forgiveness is what he wants to do. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in unchanging love. He holds his anger back. He restrains himself until he has no choice left. He is long of nose. Takes a while for that red anger to get out to the tip of his nose where something has to be done. We say a person has a short fuse. Well, the opposite of that, God has a long nose. When it's over, he doesn't hold his anger because he is pleasured by his loyal hesed. Verse 19, in addition to his incomparable character, Micah highlights his renewed compassion. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot because of what that son from Bethlehem has done on the cross. And the third great thing of his praise is his covenant fulfillment. You will give truth to Jacob and unchanging love to Abraham, which you swore to our fathers from the days of old. So he, he highlights the incomparable character of his God, the renewed compassion of his God, and the covenant fulfillment of his God. Notice that Micah ends the book with a play on his own name. Micah means who is like the Lord, and in verse 18, he says, who is a God like you? He takes his own name, and in the Hebrew, does a play on words with it, and says, who is a God like you, who pardons iniquity, passes over the rebellious act of the remnant of his possession? He does not retain his anger forever, because he delights in unchanging love. 
Yes, Micah would say that the people had forced God's hand, that they had, as it were, backed him into a corner where he had no choice but to act in judgment. But Micah will also say that he is a God of uh, forgiveness and mercy. He is so long of nose. And for this people who have committed these serious sins, the, the leaders, the priests, the judges, the lack of social justice, all of these evils, false prophets and priests, he says there's ever a hope. There is coming a new Jerusalem. There's coming a Messiah from Bethlehem. And there's coming a shepherd who will watch over his little ones. And there is, in fact, a great Lord and King coming. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these minor prophets, and thank you for our elders who put these on the agenda for us to look at and to study and to learn from. Lord, I just pray that each one of us in the circumstances of our life uh, could practice mishpat, justice, and hesed, loyal love, and humility, and help these ways in which we behave in our communities and in our neighborhoods, help these to bring uh, great delight to your heart. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.